Well, I don't know how many of you in the room are sports fans, but even if you're not, the name DeMar Hamlin might sound familiar to you this week. For those that don't know what occurred this past Monday night, DeMar Hamlin is a defensive back for the Buffalo Bills in the National Football League, and after absorbing a collision, making a tackle on national television the other evening, he got up from the play and adjusted his face mask and then collapsed on the field and was in cardiac arrest on, on the playing field. He had to be resuscitated there. He was resuscitated one more time before he was finally gotten to the hospital. We thank God that he is doing well even today. But this event that has occurred this week has impacted many across our land. There is much that could be said about God's providence and even his grace that has been evident in our land this week through the events that have unfolded. But for our purposes this morning, suffice it to say that things like what happened with this young man this week sober us, sobers all of us. We are confronted with our mortality. We are reminded in striking ways that human life is frail. There are some in our number this morning who are not here because of ailments or who are even in the hospital in need of medical care. These things are not lost on us. Our lives really are a vapor. We really are like the flowers of the field that are here today and are gone tomorrow. So given all of that, any thoughtful person has to ask some questions. Is this life all there is? Is there life beyond the grave? Deep down, human beings assume, I would venture to say, deep down, human beings know that there is life beyond the grave. Why is that so? Because God has written eternity into man's heart. And yet he has done that in such a way that man cannot find out and know what God has done from the beginning to the end. Another question that must be asked, though, is what hope do we have for that life? And is that hope certain? We are back today in Paul's letter to the Romans. The comments that I've made by way of introduction this morning would be applicable any Sunday, but in the Lord's providence these things have happened this week as we look to this text from Romans chapter 3. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be considering Romans 3 and the end of verse 22 through 26 today. As you are making your way to that passage of Scripture, let me make just some comments by way of overview. These will be brief. I realize that between today and the last time we were in Romans, it's been a few weeks' time, the holidays have transpired, so this will be good for us all to bring our minds and hearts back in step with the Apostle Paul. 
Paul began his letter by greeting the saints in Rome and by telling them of his desire to be with them. And in particular, he wrote of his eagerness to come and preach the gospel to them. Then he says, in what is effectively a thesis statement of his letter, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, although, of course, Paul knows, he wrote elsewhere, that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but he's not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to Jew and Gentile alike. Then he says in Romans 1.17 that in the gospel, the only righteousness that fallen human beings can have before God is revealed. It is a righteousness which God gives that is entirely of faith. Meaning that the gospel reveals a righteousness that sinners receive completely by faith And it is a righteousness which God accepts. Paul then begins to teach the saints in Rome. He begins to teach us. He begins to demonstrate how what he has just written about the gospel is true. That it is the only way that a sinner could ever be righteous before God. All human beings, Gentiles and Jews alike, the nations and Israel alike, are under sin. To be under sin means that we are not righteous. We have broken God's law. What God has revealed to mankind that we are to keep and do for righteousness, we have not done it. This means that when we stand before God at the end of all things, we will not pass the test on our own. This means that we will all be found guilty in the court of divine justice. It is true because God is just and he's an impartial judge. It is true that God will reward those who seek him. He'll reward those people with eternal life. The problem is that no one does that. It is true that God will reward those who do good. He'll reward those people with eternal life. But the problem is that no one does good. Now, what is true of us? Well, we, the only things we're good at is tearing other people to pieces with our speech. We are swift to destroy others. The only things that we're well acquainted with are ruin and misery. We don't know peace, and we don't fear God. We don't have reverence for him. This is why Paul concludes in Romans 3, 19 and 20. If you have your Bibles open, you can put your eyes on those verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, no flesh will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, we're going to keep reading. We're going to read now from verse 21 through verse 26, even though we will be considering primarily the end of verse 22 through 26 today. Listen now to the word of the Lord, beginning in Romans 3, 21. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for us this morning is simple. There's effectively two parts, two halves to this message. The first part, we're going to make our way through the text this morning. It's a short section of scripture. We'll be clear about what verses we're considering as we make our way through it. And then the second portion of the message, I simply aim to reflect on and apply the gospel to our hearts and minds this morning. So let's look at the text together. We're going to be considering again verse 22b, so beginning for there is no distinction through verse 26, but let's make a few comments just by way of review and to give us some context from verses 21 and the first part of verse 22. The only righteousness that will stand before the judgment of God is perfect and absolute obedience to the law. And as Paul has been crystal clear in Romans 1, 2, and a large portion of Romans 3, we as human beings, fallen children of Adam, have not rendered that perfect and absolute obedience to the law. We have not rendered that to God. Which means that we do not have a righteousness of our own. This is why there must be a righteousness that is given to us apart from the law because we can't earn righteousness through the law. This is why it is Jesus and Jesus alone who must come to our aid. Only he is righteous. Only he has kept the law. Only in him could we ever be counted righteous. And we are counted righteous because being united to him by faith, he gives us his own righteousness. He transfers it to our account. This is why, beloved, it is said that we are justified by faith. Because faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ. And in receiving Christ, we receive righteousness. Let's now consider verse 22b through 23. So beginning with, for there is no distinction through the end of verse 23. Paul says, having said that the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although all of scripture bears witness to it, it's the righteousness that's counted to sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of 
the glory of God. When he talks like this, there is no distinction. What's he mean? He means there's no distinction in terms of this is true of every human being, primarily in the context, Jew and Gentile alike. This is true of them. This is true of us. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to our condition as sinners. And so, there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to receiving God's righteousness. There is only one way. By the way, you can substitute any distinction that you want to try to make. Paul's argument still holds. It's not a situation where some can be justified this way and others can be justified that way. Every human being is a sinner. No one has anything to bring to God that would attain to glory in God's sight. Now, that phrase at the end of verse 23, the glory of God, in particular, the way that it's used here, to fall short of the glory of God, how would we understand that? I would suggest that the glory of God in this context should be understood as the praise, approval, and acceptance of God toward us. The praise, approval, and acceptance of God toward us. To attain in that sense, as a human being, to attain to the glory of God is to have kept the whole law. Because if a person keeps the whole law, God not only accepts and approves of such a person, such a person is praiseworthy. In other words, if you would have eternal life, if you would not fall short of God's glory, if you would live eternally blessed with him, keep the law. Love God perfectly with all you are, with every fiber of your being, your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, all of it, all the time. And love your neighbor perfectly as you love yourself. Consider Romans 2 and verse 7 in its context where Paul writes, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for what? Glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But mankind, as it stands, has fallen short of possessing and enjoying the glory of God because mankind has not kept the law. Consider our first father, Adam, in the garden. There was a glory set before him. Yet he failed to attain it. He broke the covenant God made with him. He sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And so have all his children. But the message of the scripture is that though Adam and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and have not attained it, Jesus has attained it. And in so doing, he has brought many sons to glory. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
but Christ, through what he alone accomplished, brings many sons to glory. If we were to come before God in our sin, it would be just like it was for Adam in the garden after he sinned. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, 8, Adam and Eve, you remember this, hide themselves from God's presence. God's presence is in the garden in the afternoon, and Adam and Eve hide. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. we were to come before God in our sin, we would be lost and afraid under a sense of our own shame and guilt, just like Adam was. We would not be able to bear the presence of God. Adam failed to attain the glory set before him. He fell short of it. So have we. Only Christ has attained to that glory, to the praise and approval of God. Only he then can bring us into it. Consider the words of Christ that he prays in his high priestly prayer. Just listen. I glorified you on earth, he prays to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This understanding makes Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 hit a little bit different. Listen to these words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so, we must be justified and brought into that glory completely by grace on account of Christ, which is precisely where Paul goes in the next verse. We're going to look at verses 24, 25, and 26 in pieces, but these verses, 24 through 26, taken together, communicate some striking truths about our justification. This has been encouraging to me. I pray it is to you. Just listen very briefly. Verses 24 through 26 teach us the following things about our justification. One, God's grace is the ground of it. What's the bottom? What's the ground? God's grace, not our merit. Second, that Christ himself, his blood, is the meritorious cause of it. Thirdly, that faith is the instrument through which we receive it. And lastly, that the final result of it is the praise of God's justice, goodness, and grace. So regarding our justification, God's grace is the ground of it. 
Christ is the meritorious cause of it. Faith is the instrument through which we receive it. And the final result of it is the praise of God's justice, goodness, and grace. Sounds like the scriptures to me. Let's look at verse 24. Now, literally, I, I think the way this verse could be rendered, being justified freely by his grace, or as the ESV says, and are justified by God's grace as a gift. It communicates the same idea. But we are justified freely by his grace. This whole thing, in other words, is from God. It's of him. It's not of us. It's not from us. And this whole thing is through Christ Jesus. Our justification, our righteousness is wholly attributed to God's grace. This is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He is the material, the substance of it, and it comes through him alone. And we receive from him what we do not have, and we receive from him what we could never attain. So let's break these, this verse, excuse me, verse 24, down into some smaller pieces still. We read the word justified and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification, as important of a topic as could ever be considered. What is it? To be justified means that we are forgiven of sin, forgiven of sins committed. It means that we are absolved of guilt. We are absolved from the punishment due to us because of our guilt. So we were guilty, but now are no longer viewed, are no longer seen, no longer are guilty. To be justified is to be pronounced just, to be pronounced righteous, solely on account of Christ. Forgiven of sins, absolved of guilt and punishment, declared righteous, solely on account of Christ. His perfect life in obedience to the entire law and his suffering and his obedience in his whole life and pointedly in his death. His righteousness is counted to us as our own righteousness. It's as though we have been as perfectly obedient as he was. We receive this by faith, and even this faith we don't produce. To be justified means that there is no longer condemnation for anyone who has been justified in Christ. The sentence of condemnation that was on a sinner is removed and a verdict of justified is given. And lastly, this is important, justification is not a process. It is at once complete. Why does that matter? Think about this. Justification at once complete means the imputation, the counting of perfect righteousness to a sinner is at once complete. Actual pardon of all past sins is at once complete. 
Certain pardon of all future sins is at once complete and guarantee of the heavenly inheritance is at once complete. We also read in verse 24 that we are justified by God's grace as a gift, or we are justified freely by God's grace. Let's think about that for a moment. When it comes to salvation, all is of God. All means all. Nothing belongs to or proceeds from man. We don't bring anything. We don't pay anything. We don't earn anything. God saves freely of his own will, of his own goodness, without compulsion. And we receive from his goodness unmerited favor. He is the one, after all, who justifies not the godly, but the ungodly. Lastly, in verse 24, we read, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this word redemption, it signifies a buying back. Purchasing something at a price is to redeem something. And this is true of us. The term redemption even signifies the paying of a ransom. We were slaves, prisoners, condemned to death, and we were ransomed by Jesus Christ. The innocent was substituted in the place of the guilty. He took our sentence, and we go free. He has redeemed us. Let's look now to verse 25. Regarding Jesus, in whom and through whom we have redemption, in whom, through whom, we're justified by God's grace as a gift. Regarding Jesus, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So through his suffering, pointedly his death, Jesus makes satisfaction for sins. And then don't miss that we receive him by faith. You see that. In verse 25, Jesus is the one whom God put forward, and Jesus is the one who is to be received by faith. It is not reductionistic to say that Jesus himself is the gospel. Him we receive by faith. To receive Christ is to receive all of his benefits. The benefits of Christ ought never be separated from Christ himself. All kinds of bad things happen when we do that. Union with Christ by faith is our salvation, brothers and sisters. Him we receive, and in receiving him by faith, we receive all of his benefits. Now this word propitiation that we see, Jesus was put forward as a propitiation 
That word, it means to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God against sin and to earn God's favor. So Christ being put forward as a propitiation means that he has made satisfaction for our sins. He has appeased the wrath of God that our sins deserve, and he has earned God's favor. Jesus did that. He was put forward for that purpose, for the sake of all of his people of all time. We read here, second sentence of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Now, let's ask ourselves this question. What is God's righteousness here in verse 25 in the first part of 26 talking about? Right, well, in the context, the language of God's righteousness shows up four times in this section of Scripture. Shows up in verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Shows up in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It shows up in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. It shows up again in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness. And on top of that, there's Romans 1.17. In all of these instances, beloved, this is my understanding, the emphasis is the same. Paul is talking about the way God saves sinners. So all of this regarding Christ as a propitiation was to show God's righteousness regarding, in verse 25, the salvation of saints who lived before Jesus came. The way they were saved is now manifest. The way they were saved is now made plain. It is through the putting forward of Christ for them. A significant observation here. The justification of saints before Christ came still only occurred because of Christ. The fact that he was coming was the ground of any Old Testament saint's justification. There is only one way of salvation for all of God's people of all time, and Jesus is it. That's the point that Paul is making right there in verse 25. All of God's people from every era have been saved through trusting the promises of God that are realized in God's Christ. Now let's look to verse 26. All of this regarding Christ as a propitiation is to show God's righteousness at the present time, so first century onward, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the righteous one. All righteousness dwells in him. God the Son took on flesh and lived in perfect righteousness as a human being, and his righteousness is counted to sinners, and so God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just always. This was true of him pardoning saints before Christ came. This was true of him, is true of him pardoning saints after Christ came. That said, this is huge, when Christ was put forward as a propitiation for his people, the ground on which God forgives and justifies his people was made clear. And God's justice was vindicated. That's how I think we should understand this. 
The putting forward of Christ makes plain the way that God has always saved his people through the Son of God earning righteousness and taking the penalty his people deserve, and in that being made manifest, the justice of God is vindicated. It is not as though God is simply giving sin a pass or looking the other way. God is just in saving sinners because Christ has satisfied the justice of God in every way. It's like we often sing. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So now, beloved, what I want to do in the rest of our time is reflect on and apply the gospel to our our hearts and our minds. What better thing could we do? I hope this is something you're already thinking or have thought about. If not, today is a good time to start thinking about it. The gospel is not something to simply be explained. It is not something that is to simply be understood, grasped. The gospel is news to sinners who have no hope apart from Christ. Consider the entire witness of the scriptures. We learn in the word of God of our origins, where we came from. God in his word gives us his law, which is a revelation of his holy character. It reveals what he requires for righteousness. We learn from God's law what's right and wrong and good and bad and righteous and evil. We learn from God's law how we are to live. There are various uses of God's law, and we're going to consider a couple of those next week. But as we thought about a lot from Romans already, the first use of the law is to show us how sinful we are, to bring us to the end of ourselves. But not only do we learn of our origin in God's word, and not only do we learn of God's law in God's word, the scriptures reveal God's gospel. They are a testimony about the Christ, the Messiah, and God's eternal plan to save a people through him. This is the thrust of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. As fallen humans, we suppress the truth. We delude ourselves into thinking that we're better than we are. We, most of us, I mean, we still battle this as believers, guys. Most of us think that we're basically pretty good. Or, you know, worst case, we're kind of a mashup of good and bad. But there's probably more good than bad, so it's going to turn out okay in the end. That's how we tend to think. The reality, though, is that we have broken God's holy and righteous law. We have committed cosmic treason by aligning ourselves with the adversary, Satan, who is the ancient serpent, who is the devil. And so we are deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. The scriptures tell us this. Naturally, we're separated from God, alienated from him, or without him and without hope in the world. We're lost and we're ruined by the fall, and we're unwilling to do anything about our spiritual condition. And even if we were willing, we're not able. So if any of Adam's helpless race were ever going to be rescued and reconciled to God, God would have to be the one to do it. And he did. He has. And that is the news. That's what the gospel is. It's the proclamation. It's the news that the promised redeemer 
who was promised immediately upon the fall of man into sin, he has come. He has accomplished salvation. He did it. There's nothing left to be done to add to this news. This news is to be believed, it's to be trusted, it's to be rested in. And it is staggering news. God actually visited the earth in human form. He has been here. It's wild. You see, I'm thinking of things, maybe these are silly things, I don't think so, but you, you know, you go places or you see it in movies like so-and-so was here. Kind of a, I, I'm struck by that sometimes because I'm like, man, you know, life is fleeting, it's passing, and a person was here at a point in time in history. It's kind of a neat thing to think about. How much more so the fact that the God of the universe was here. He lived here. The creator stood on the earth. And yet the earth was not crushed by the weight of the eternal God. Because he was pleased for the fullness of his deity to dwell in human form. He walked. He talked. He ate. He drank. He slept. He asked questions. He answered them. He talked. He confronted At times, and pointedly at the right time, he was silent. He healed the sick and the blind and the lame and the deaf. He fed hungry crowds. He raised the dead. He preached good news to the poor. He submitted himself to the law that he himself had given. He honored and obeyed and loved his father in everything he ever did, ever thought, or ever felt. He loved his neighbor as himself every moment that he was here. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do all of this? Why did he come? Well, he came to seek and to save the lost, to stand in our place as our representative. God himself. So that we might have his perfect record, all of his obedience, all of his love to God and neighbor, all of his righteousness. God the Son came to earth to seek and to save the lost, to stand in our place as our substitute, to make satisfaction for our sins, so that we might be redeemed and ransomed, absolved and forgiven, so that we might be justified by God's grace as a gift. In all of this, we receive by faith, apart from anything that we have done or could ever do. And so now, hear this, the only way any accusation from the evil one, any accusation of even the law, any accusation of our conscience, the only way any accusation could stick to us now is if there is a blemish found in the righteousness of Christ with which we are clothed. And the only way any accusation could stick to us now is if there is some sin for which the death of the Son of God cannot make satisfaction. What God promised beforehand through his prophets has come to pass through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim, 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of all the nations, for the sake of his name among them. And Jesus, beloved, is still seeking and saving the lost. The Spirit has testified that he is a priest forever on the basis of his indestructible life. He has told us himself that he is with us to the end of the age. We know that he lives forever to make intercession for his own. We know that he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. So friends who are with us this morning, young people who sit here today, children as you sit here this morning, won't you trust this Christ today? And saints, won't you resolve in your heart as we embark upon this new year to trust him yet still today and to pray for grace to trust him more? Thinking back to how we began our time, we asked some significant questions. Is there hope beyond the grave? And is that hope certain? Well, beloved, I want to ask you some questions. Participate with me. What was your hope the day you trusted Christ? Jesus. What is your hope today? Jesus. What will be your hope when you come to die? Jesus. I promise you, not today, not tomorrow, or at the end of your life, your hope and mine will not be in anything that we have done. It won't be in anything having anything to do with us. It won't be our love, because it doesn't matter how much our love is pointed out to us. Brother, sister, you love so well. Could have always loved so much more. Doesn't matter. If it's pointed out to us, man, you fought hard against sin. You abstained from sin. You did it well. Could have abstained so much more. Could have fought so much harder. Oh, but brother, sister, you have such faith. Your faith is strong. I don't know about that, but I'm confident that my faith could have been stronger. I could have believed more. I could have doubted so much less. Christ was our hope the day we trusted him. He is our hope today, and he will be our hope when we come to die. Let that preach a word to us this morning. Now, someone might say, well, brother, we need to persevere. Amen, we do. Amen, we do. And how will that happen? This is a question worth contemplating a lot. How will that happen? happen? What will be the effective cause of our perseverance? What will be the power? What will be the rock on which we stand? Is it not Jesus Christ and him crucified? Beloved, those who persevere are those who have hidden themselves in the rock of ages and remain there. Those who persevere are those who have taken shelter under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and remain there. 
Those who persevere are those who have taken refuge in the Son, the Lord's Christ, and remain there. Those who persevere are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, do we strive? You better believe we do. Do we fight? You better believe we do. We strive and fight and plead and pray and confess and weep and exhort and preach and sing. We do all of that. In this life we now live in the flesh, all of it, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. For apart from him, we can do nothing. Saints, may your heart be comforted this morning by the fact that Jesus is a sinner's Savior. He does not break bruised reeds. He does not put out smoldering wicks. Go to him. Cast your anxieties on him. You say to him, Lord, I've sinned too much. And he says back to you, I died for you. I made satisfaction for all your sins. I will never cast you out. You say to him, Lord, I've not obeyed well enough. To which he says, well, I have obeyed perfectly. And by my obedience, you are counted righteous. And I'll never cast you out. You say, Lord, I, I don't have enough zeal to do the will of God. To which he says, do you know what's written of me? It's written, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. That's what's written about me. And I'll never cast you out. What a savior he is. Gentle, kind. We can go to him. What is our only comfort in life and death? It's that we're not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Faithful he is. He has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven. And in fact, all things must work together for our salvation. Because we belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's good news indeed. Let's pray.